Good morning. Can you all hear me? Is this working? In the back? Yeah? Okay. Um, thanks for coming out this morning. It is a pleasure to be here. Although I seem to have already trapped my glasses in my microphone. This is the test. I think that should work. That's why they give you an hour for these things, because... I'm telling you, it takes a, it takes a poet, it takes a poet about 25 minutes to get this again. Yeah, perfect. There we go. All right. Good to go. Yeah. You need to give a poet 25 minutes to play with technology. Perfect. Thank you, Carol. Um, again, thanks for coming out. Um, and I know that, that elegy isn't perhaps the most uplifting topic to, to begin a week with. Um, I'm not going to stand up here and do some jazz standards. People are dying. It's trying to cheer you up. It's, it's sad. But, but I think we can come at this with a spirit of play. And the main em the impetus here is to, is to get you to think about ways of writing about um, something that is, as Carol mentioned, a, a negative space, but a negative space that can end up generating some actually very positive things, both in terms of writing and, and thus feeling. Um, let, me, let me start today. Um, there, there are plenty of seats that are left in this room. And I want to do this little exercise where we actually make the room a little bigger. Okay? I'd like you to meditate just for a second and think about someone or something or some place that you've lost. Okay? I'd like you to think about that for a minute. Maybe some names come up. Maybe some places come up. Now, it might not be somebody who's passed away, per se. It might be somebody who's just no longer a part of your life, childhood friend who moved away. Okay. And what I'd like to do for about the first minute is I'd love for you to actually call that person's name out loud in the room. Okay? So whenever you're ready for about a minute or so, I'd like to sort of expand or blossom the room a little bit with the names of some people who, or places or things that aren't actually still here, but you're making them present. Okay? Carol. Kathy. Jenny. Elliot. In a very quick instant, you end up bringing those people that you have lost into the room with you. And this is part of the practice of what this kind of writing that we're going to be looking at today might also, might also accomplish. So you'll see up on the board, um, I have a little excerpt. Well, it's only an excerpt because you can't see the whole thing. But um, it's a poem by Robert Haas, and it's called Meditation and Flag and Youth. And I'm not gonna, it might be kind of hard for you to see the font, um, so I'm just gonna read it to you fairly quickly um, and slide it up the page as I go. This is not part of your handout, by the way. This is, this is so. Okay. You can see that there's some dinosaurs who aren't doing so well, and at the bottom, one is saying, frankly, I don't like the way things are going. <laughs> All the new thinking is about loss. 
and this resembles the old thinking. The idea, for example, that each particular erases the luminous clarity of a general idea. That the clown-faced woodpecker probing the dead sculpted trunk of that black birch is, by his presence, some tragic falling off from a first world of undivided light. Or the other notion that because there is in this world no one thing to which the bramble of blackberry corresponds, a word is elegy to what it signifies. We talked about it late last night, and in the voice of my friend there was a thin wire of grief, a tone almost careless. After a while I understood that, talking this way, everything dissolves. Justice, time, hair, woman, you, and I. There was a woman I made love to, and I remember how, holding her small shoulders in my hands sometimes, I felt a violent wonder in her presence, like a thirst for salt from my childhood river with its island willows, silly music from the pleasure boat, muddy places where we caught the little orange-silver fish called pumpkin seed. It hardly had to do with her. Longing we say, because desire is full of endless distances. I must have been the same to her, but I remember so much the way her hands dismantled bread, the thing her father said that hurt her, what she dreamed. There are moments when the body is as numinous as words, days that are the good flesh continuing, such tenderness, those afternoons and evenings saying, Blackberry, Blackberry, Blackberry. And the thing, I, the thing that I'm drawn to in this poem for our purposes today is this idea about, up here, um, a word is elegy uh, to what it signifies. Um, and I think that's sort of an interesting <coughs> Some of the poems that we're going to be looking at today will actually bring us We will be watching a movie for later. We're multimedia. We might drop the recorder, fumble the DVD, but we'll get there. Um, on page one of your packet, you will notice under the word elegy um, a little bit of language. Um, and I do think that poetry ends up serving us as one of the most appealing consolations. Elegy can transform loss and even the threat of loss into an artful presence. Um, I'd argue in a way that all poems have a little bit of elegiac code of maintenance and survival in their DNA. They tend to still and distill moments in time. They make keepsakes of consciousness that survive in the moment of what we make of them. Um, and elegies, however explicitly, uh, they address loss and move towards consolation and transformation. Um, these themes um, are important. And there's not really a, necessarily a strict formal pattern or requirement for an elegy. Uh, we like to think of it as a convention. Um, although I should say that, you know, in its original inc incarnation, um, elegies did have a particular form in poetry. Elegiac verse was a couplet, and you'd have um, you'd have a hexameter line followed by a pentameter line. So initially we're talking about, especially from Greek culture, the elegy did have a formal procedural uh, uh, frame 
with, with, within which to work. However, more modern elegies tend to sort of ignore that, and it becomes more of a convention in which we deal with, um, with poems and with loss. Um, the word comes from the Greek word elegia, which is song of mourning, and it's a lament. It sets out the circumstances and the character of loss. It mourns for a dead person. It lists virtues and seeks consolation beyond the momentary event. Um, and what I like, uh, I like what Donald Hall says about elegies in that they're not necessarily release from grief, but companionship with grief. And the poet C.D. Wright talks about elegy not so much as loss as opposition, because after all, elegies are written by the living for the living who remain in the name of who's been lost. Um, another nice thing to think about elegy is that um, Confirming loss is actually a very real and necessary thing to do, that individual disappearance actually matters, and that these ruptures in the known world are there for us to point at and to share with each other. Um, you'll notice on the handout, the first page below the little um, hot dog cartoon, it says, hey, everybody, we're invited to a cookout. <laughs> Poor guy. He'll be writing his elegy soon. Right below that, um, I've copied down, and this is very abbreviated, um, but uh, Peter Sachs, who's uh, an excellent critic and a poet in his own right, uh, wrote a great book called The English Elegy. And he's got a couple of elegiac conventions that he talks about, um, that it has its origins in mythology, that it uses repetition and refrain, and, and to sort of create some sort of continuity in the face of discontinuity or loss, repeatedly the name of the loss might be spoken. So if it's for a particular person, that particular person's name might come up again and again. Um, often reiterated questions are brought up in elegies. Um, they try to set free anger and frustration. And in a sense, they force the mourner to move forward from the loss um, back towards the world again, the world of the living, uh, and how we create uh, a life and keep going without this person or thing or place that we've lost. There tend to be movements from grief to consolation. Um, what's interesting, too, is that in its ancient incarnations, there used to be elements of contest and rewards. And in fact, you could not, in ancient Greek culture, make a claim of inheritance unless somehow elegy was tied into it. Right? So there's even this weird kind of competitive suggestion that you had people coming up with elegies because they wanted to be part of the inheritance of, of the person who, who, had, who had passed away. So. I hate, I hate to think of, you know, that, that meshing of legal system and poetics, but why not? I don't know. I guess it happens. Um, the other thing about elegy that Sachs talks about that's kind of important is that there's this self-conscious attention to the fact that the writer has survived, right? Um, and yet there's also, there has to be this sense of a little bit of power in that, well, I'm still here, which is great, but then there's also this submission um, to language and what it can do in order to help evoke and invoke the person who's been lost. Um, if you um, you can you can you can turn to page two, but I'm still going to be talking about one of Sachs's initial points, which is origins in mythology. Um, how many of you remember the story of um, Apollo and Daphne? Remember Apollo and Daphne, sir? What do you remember from Apollo and Daphne? He was chasing her. She called out to her father, and um, he transformed her into um, a tree or a bush, a mm -hmm. laurel. 
Did everybody hear that? This idea that Apollo is chasing Daphne. Okay, Apollo, full of lust. He's actually just done something where he's kind of dissed Cupid, and Cupid is annoyed at him, so Cupid pegs him with an arrow, and he falls desperately in love with, um, with Daphne. And he pursues her. Um, and as he's, becoming, as he's getting closer and closer to pursuing her, she cries out to help for her father um, and is transformed into a laurel tree. Okay? And Apollo, who's a little distraught at the fact that he uh, hasn't been able to consummate this sexual conquest, he takes trees, he takes branches and, and leaves from the actual laurel tree and makes the wreath. So the laurel wreath actually ends up being a consolation prize. Now, it's terribly embarrassing that the two main mythological stories that we tell about the formation of poetry and elegy come because of two gods who just couldn't control their libido, right? But men will be men. Hopefully, we got something better out of it, even though it's hard to say that, that for Daphne and Syrinx, things ended well. But that, that idea of the laurel wreath as consolation prize, what you're left when, when the beloved is now gone, that's sort of the mythological birth of, of what we talk about when we talk about um, elegy. Um, so she becomes transformed into something like a consolation prize that becomes a sign of, of poethood. Um, Pan and Syrinx, there's a similar, similar situation where um, Pan is chasing Syrinx, uh, and she's nearing a dead end at the river, Ladon, uh, and she begs the water nymphs to change her shape. Um, Pan, finally, when he reaches out to grab Syrinx, ends up then with a, a clump or a handful of reeds, and he's very depressed because he's missed his chance at his beloved. And when he sighs, his breath goes over the reeds, and it makes this low, mournful sound. Okay? And that also is sort of the birth of elegy, that sound, that lament that comes at having lost something and being left with a consolation prize of sorts, that low-pitched complaint that is offered with the wind that you generate over the, over the instrument. Okay? Um, so as with the laurel wreath, the object from the natural world, it's altered and it yields some kind of consolation um, to them. And yes, so troubling as their bad boy behavior might be, we get some elegies out of it. Maybe that's not, not so bad. Let's take a look at, um, in your packet, uh, some of the poems that are here. And again, I picked some poems that I hoped, they're contemporary poems, and I hope that for you, whether you're a poet or even a fiction writer, I think some of this stuff will apply um, to your own writing. Um, I'm going to read this poem called Little Elegy by Keith Althaus. Um, Sorry, it's on page one of your packet. Little Elegy. Even the stars wear out, their great engines fail, the unapproachable roar and heat subside, and wind blows across the hole in the sky with a noise like a boy playing on an empty bottle. It is an owl or a train. You hear it underground, where the worms live that can be cut in half and start over again and again. Their heart must be in two places at once, like mine. What I, what I love about this poem is its simple clarity and also this, this vertical track that sort of goes from the celestial right down to earth and kind of delightful in that the boy blowing on the bottle also sort of recalls this idea of pan and syrinx and, and pan blowing on the reeds to sort of make this mournful sound. Um, so I think it's, 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 a, it's a nice little poem. Um, 
with insufficient f physical particulars, he sort of lays bare this, this physical and emotional landscape of loss. I think that poem does a nice little job of that. Yeah. Um, another poem on the bottom of page three by Marie Howe. It's called What the Living Do. I like how we kind of move from some mundane things in this poem to the sacred. It might be the inverse of the Alt House poem a little bit. Um, and how everyday, everyday iniquities kind of build and accrue. Uh, and yet with memory and desire comes a kind of salvation in this poem. What the Living Do by Marie Howe. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there, and the Drano won't work, but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the opening living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, diving, or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, sorry, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again, and again later, when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say, the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep from my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. Beautiful poem. Do you guys have any comments on either of those two poems? I want, you know, this doesn't have to be just me yapping at you. I wonder if there's anything that comes out in those poems that you're interested in that you notice. Yes, what's your name, please? Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Um, I just wondered, do you, do you think that how it shows It's a great question. She might very well have that in mind and want to sort of, even if it doesn't sort of imitate sort of a, a hexameter or pentameter kind of music, she might very well want to sort of pay homage to, to the origins of the form. Um, the other thing... The last yeah. line is, you know, the last couplet is broken, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
talking about where they're going. It's so inside their head, and hopefully their words are, are getting it across as best as they can. But sometimes they get a little lost. You know, it's an interesting point. And I think one thing I would say is that I think that sometimes, um, you know, I think it's best to think of poems not not always necessarily as vessels of meaning that we have to sort of figure out there's something in there that it means. They tend to me, I think, to be more engines of meaning and that they are creating their own meaning as they go along. For me, the thing that I find so appealing about both the Althaus and the Marie Howe, there are these weird jumps. There are these weird associative jumps. And for me, that very, that very much sort of parallels or maps out what a human mind what a thinking mind is going through as it tries to come to grips with something that's so emotionally overwhelming. Um, I agree there might not be sort of a, a smooth coherence or consistency at all times, but sometimes that sense of engaging in that process of, of what it's like to work your way towards something, towards some consolation, maybe some of those leaps are part of it. Yeah, that's sure. yeah. I, mean, I, do, I do come away with the feeling. Right, right. It's just to get a little lost. Yeah, like, no, I agree. There's that, sometimes there's the head cock and you sort of wonder about these things. Yes, sir. What's your name? I think that layering is, is important, right? I think that, uh, you know, Catullus has that great poem that starts Odi et Amo, which is I hate and I love. And, and all of you know from dealing with your family members that these are things you can feel simultaneously, right? And, that, and that's one of the realms that poetry tends to work in, right? This, this sort of simultaneity of feeling, this layering of things that goes along with what, with what Les is saying. Let's, um, let's, let's move on. I want to do a couple of things. There, um, there are a couple of poems that are on page two of your packet. Poem by Norman Doobie. Love that last name. Uh, and also a poem by David Young. Um, and what I want to do is, from, from time to time today, um, there are going to be a couple of things. I don't know if you can see up here on the board. It just says, try this. I will give you a couple of try this things to do with your own writing. And I think this can work whether you're writing prose um, or whether you're writing poetry. Um, either way, I think these exercises can work. Um, and we'll get to one of those in a second. Um, of Politics and Art by Norman Doobie and Chloe in late January both seem to me to be um, poems that really, really want to target um, people that they've lost. Um, what I think I'm going to do for time's sake, um, if I have time at the end, I'll come back and read the Doobie poem, which is longer, but, but you have it with you to take home anyway. I'm just going to read the David Young poem, which is called Chloe in Late January. Midwinter here, a frozen pause, and now some 19 years since cancer took your life. This month's old god, they say, faced opposite directions, backward and forward. May I do that too? It's much the same. Deer come and go as soft as souls in Hades, glimpsed at wood's edge toward dusk. Their tracks in daylight show they come at night to taste my neighbor's crab trees, last fall's fruit shrunk down to sour puckered berries. And where in this arrested world might I expect to meet your cordial spirit? You would not bother with that graveyard, smooth below its gleaming cloak of snow, You'd want to weave among the trees beside the tiny kinglet, gold head aglow, 
warming itself with ingenuities, adapting, singing, born on the major currents of this life, like the creek that surprised me yesterday again, running full tilt across its pebbled bottom, even in this deep cold. Um, so here's my first try this exercise for someone you might have lost. It comes from, initially, from a little excerpt that I found in a book called Exiled in the World. It's a book edited by Jerome Rothenberg and Harris Lenowitz. And they have um, this brief little snippet from sort of like a, y a Yiddish remedy. And it says literally, we're translated, slice an apple in three, write a name on each slice, and eat it. Um, what I did with my class last week, in which I think is pre a pretty successful exercise for you to both step into a, a moment of elegiac writing, but also be playing with metaphor, is to do exactly that. Is to buy an apple, okay? Good to do this with a couple of people, too. To cut it into a section. And when you get a section of apple, you take your apple, you take your apple slice, and you take a toothpick, right? And let's say you're thinking about a particular person. Okay, so David Young, in this case, in that previous poem, he might be thinking of Chloe. So he might take his toothpick and poke the name Chloe, sort of staccato, pointillist style, into the skin of the apple. And as he's doing that, he might think of Chloe, what she meant to him, and some memories that come back, and some images that come back. Um, and then he'll begin to eat that apple. And what you're doing is you're, you want to make yourself constantly aware of the sensory experience of what's going on as you eat that apple. What does it taste like? Is it sweet? Is it a little sour? Is it out of season? Does it make you think of apples that are in season? Is it so in season that it explodes on your tongue? Okay. It's also helpful to think about what kind of analogies come to bear when we think of apples. Can a couple of you call out just what you think of when you think of an apple? What associations come to mind? Comfort me with apples. Excellent. What else? T temptation, somebody said. Somebody, Eve, right? What else? An apple a day keeps the doctor away, so we hope. Somebody want to have a, a teacher. Okay, exactly. Sorry, what was that last one? Pie. Pie. Okay, something all-American, apple pie. I think those of you that remember 45s with the little beat, when you got a Beatles 45 and you had the apple in the middle of it, right? Or those of you now that are working on iPods. So tons of associations that we have with apples, right? Um, all these things are flowing around in your head, right? Along with the sensory taste of eating the apple and doing this weird metaphoric thing of ingesting the name of the beloved that you're talking about. And often it leads to some very, very deep and surprising and enlightening, lively writing. Okay? And that can be sort of your apple elegy exercise, which can bring you towards some writing about someone or something or some place that you've lost. Um, if you look on um, the back page, there are two poems on the back page. I'm going to mention another, before we get to these two poems, I'm going to mention another try this exercise, which is um, those of you, some of you who were in my class this past week played with this exercise, and, and specifically to target it towards elegy. Um, I like to ask students to bring in an object um, that has some significant emotional import. Often it's an object that somebody has given you. 
and that someone is no longer present. It might have been somebody who moved away, childhood friend. It might have been a grandparent who sort of gave it to you as a little heirloom kind of object, um, something of that nature. Um, and often what's, what's good to do is to use that object in order to sort of sneakily go in the side door and write about this person that's associated with the object. And one interesting thing to do with that, emo with that emotional totem, with that emotional object, is to simply write down a number of descriptions, a number of adjectives that describe it. Okay? So I have a little green jade bell that my mother brought me back from Japan when I was a kid, and it used to hang outside our, our, our window as sort of a wind chime. And the wind chime piece of oak tag or whatever it was is long gone, but I still have this little bell. It's this squat little pebbled bell that I have. Okay? And so what one exercise to do is to take that emotional object and to think of a couple of adjectives that simply describe it visually, okay? such as the word green, okay? or the word um, squat, or the word pebbled. I just came up with three right there. And then what you do with those adjectives is that you then come up with some corresponding nouns that go with those adjectives. Okay, has nothing to do with your object. So for green, maybe one of the one of the nouns I could come up with for green would be a frog. Okay, and then maybe one of the things I would come up with for squat was a fire hydrant. And then one of the things I would come up with for pebbled is a white stone driveway. And what's actually kind of fun is to try to write an elegy that focuses on the object and only really mentions the person in the title of the poem or in the short piece of fiction that you're doing. And you try to bring in those, you try to incorporate those nouns that don't seemingly have anything to do with the subject matter, such as the pebbled driveway or the frog or the fire hydrant. And those are images that allow you to increase the metaphoric play in whatever else it is that you're writing about. So you bring those nouns into your poem about the object or into your writing about the object. And it ends up being an interesting way of expanding an elegy that while it's really talking about an object, wants to focus on the relationship or the person who's missing. Um, it's a fun exercise to try to do. So that's another try this. Um, now back to the packet that you have. If you look at the back page, page four, Two poems, one by Megan O'Rourke called My Life as a Teenager, and one by Jack Gilbert called Searching for Pittsburgh. So I'm going to read Megan's poem, even though I can't really say French. Sandy, you want to, you want, you want to say that line out loud for me again? How, do I say tu t'appelles? One, two, three, four, oh. five. Bonjour, je t'aime comme tu. Just what she said. Just remember that when I get to that Will you want to do that? Will you, will you help okay, me out? Me. All right, I will. I love you. Thank you. My life as a teenager. I felt remorse for civilization. My nostalgia was buoyant, fat as cartoon clouds. I sang teenage French, sashaying down the street. The apartment building leaned down at me. I proclaimed my love for the past, wearing fitted clothes from the 40s. I came out against pointlessness. I drank creme de menthe like a potion. All night boys danced in the living room, mouthing the words to the go-go's, shrugging into the night's advances, then took their stolen kisses from girls, fat like Troy, ready for the sieging. In the morning, the sun was a cutout in the smog. 
Every window was a picture window. The dawn grew into day, red, orange, blue, in perfect disorder. The partygoers were outside, building a monument out of a blowtorch and something old and green. From where I stood, the tree, de-leafed and nude, appeared to bow to me, and what had long been silent grew. What I would say about what's nice about what O'Rourke does and what Gilbert does in that second poem, they're writing elegies that aren't quite traditional. O'Rourke, I think, is sort of, and you could argue with me on this, it it might be a bit of a push on my part, but I think O'Rourke is writing a poem that's an elegy to a particular time in her life, okay, that she's no longer in. And so this expands our sense of what elegiac writing can sort of uh, incorporate. Whereas Jack Gilbert's poem, which I think for time's sake, maybe we'll have time, I want to make sure we get to the to the film portion of our, of our session. Um, Gilbert writes an elegy that really is very much about place and a place that he once grew up in. Okay? Those of you that know the, uh, the great Polish poet, contemporary poet, um, Adam Zagajewski, he's got a poem called To Lwów, which is a wonderful poem about his town where he grew up or where he at least spent significant time. So on this back page, you've got two elegies that take us out of the normal mode of writing for a specific person and really talk about a specific time in one's life or a particular place that one's lost. And I think both of these are, uh, you know, offer, offer ideal circumstances for you to enter into a poem where you sort of play with this idea of, of elegy. Okay? All right. So this next exercise, you know, you thought you were scot-free and you wouldn't have to see any excerpts from It's a Wonderful Life until next Thanksgiving, but I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm bringing out the wonderful cheesy classic that we all love and that seems to be on about 37 times each holiday season. (coughs) Before we do this, though, I want you to think about a couple things, and maybe you can take some notes to yourself, okay? Um, It's a list of six things, all right? So I want you to make a list for six, of six things. I want you to write down, number one, someone that you've helped in your life. Someone that you've helped. I'd also like you to think of someone that you've hurt. Someone that you've hurt in your life. A certain obsession or vice or addiction that you have. And I'll repeat these at the end. Something you've built, you've literally made with your hands, something you've built. Uh, number five, something that you've broken in your life, something that you've broken. And number six, someone you wouldn't have met if you had not been born. Someone you would not have met if you had not been born. So that list again is someone you've helped, someone you've hurt, a vice or an addiction, obsession that you have, uh, something that you've built, something that you've broken, and someone you wouldn't have met if you hadn't been born. And with these items in hand, you're gonna, we're going to do something. We're going to take a little movie break. 
going to bring you to the movies for a couple of minutes. We're going to watch a couple of excerpts from Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life.
understand Burmese. He's not a failure. You can't say that about my father. You're not. You're the biggest man in town. Bigger than him. Bigger than everybody.
And it, it, it's on page three. Because I can never go in direct order. Poets and math are tricky. It's, uh, it's above the Marie Howe poem, and it's a W.S. Merwin poem called For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men, as today, riding after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease, and bowing not knowing to what. What I'd like you to try to do in my final try this is to take that list of six items. And it's basically a kind of elegy where, oddly enough, it's a self-elegy. You're imagining the world without you in it and trying to imagine the people who would have been affected, who you have affected, who you have had uh, in your life who have had great import for you and maybe people you've hurt, people you've helped, etc. And to write an elegy where you sort of step back from yourself and you imagine the world without you. And I call that exercise the George Bailey because it allows you to do what George Bailey's done. Okay. Um, so I hope this has been a brief yet somewhat interesting introduction to the elegy and, and what possibilities it gives you in terms of your own writing, um, whether you're writing poems or whether you're writing prose. So thanks very much for your attention today.